I'm your host, Parasite Steve, a.k.a. Steve Ann Sampson, a.k.a. All Hallows Steve, though nobody calls me that, but they should. (laughs) 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 And with me, as always, are my carbon-based spooky cohorts, Boss Rush Mode, Quick Impression for ya, Caw Caw Bang Fuck Em Dead, 8-Bit Alchemy, It Can't Rain All The Time. Did you just say it? Did you just say it can't? It can't ran? It can't, it can't ran all the time? Rain all the time. It can train all the time. And I ran. I ran. And so into For a ghost, you bleed just fine. That's tr- that is true. I'm glad you noticed that about me. I didn't, you know, nobody comments on my bleeding abilities, but they but it's it's very true. You know what it is? It's that mustache. Is it? Is that what it is? That's what it is. Thanks. It bleeds. Um <laughs> Yeah, so hey, you know we're uh, we're off on another uh, spooky episode in uh, the month month of October. It's pretty fun. We get three whole Tentacle Tuesdays this month. So how about that? How about them apples? How about them pumpkins? How about da? How about them pumpkins? How about da? How about da? Tell me about da. And uh, yeah, so so it just so happens that uh, this particular episode you're listening to right now, we actually have a guest. Did you guys he's, realize that he's a special? Guest. I know. I, I I know. Like the listening audience has seen has seen the title, so they already know. I don't know if you guys realize what's going on. I have no clue who this man is. I never have any idea of anything ever. Oh. Well, uh, we'd like to welcome into the studio Mr. Derek Rook of Rough House Publishing. Yeah, thank you very much. I actually just uh, strolled on off the street. And by the way, if the crow did Derek, take place awesome. in the Amazon, it can kind of rain all the time. Hey. Hey, yeah. that's true. You're or right. in Seattle. Yeah, right. or Seattle is fucking definitely going to rain. Or in all London, the time. England. You know, I just went to Seattle this year and it wasn't raining even once. So, poop. Oh. Poop on, you. Poop. Poop on you. Poop on you, So even then, you, even then, it can't rain all the time. <laughs> I mean, not all the time, for crying out loud. It can't rain all the time. That's very true. So I think that, um, as I said, the listening audience, they already know what this uh, episode is about, which is uh, one of my favorite, favorite things of all time uh, as a teenager by far. Uh, I was fairly obsessed with this. In fact, uh, on the Retroid board, I... Uh, one of one of my old friends like mentioned this. Mary Dipka said she's like Steve. I so clearly remember you being obsessed with this, and and it was so funny. Like I, I really was like way into the crow, and it was for me more about the movie. But I know that Derek, you are like a fan of the movie, but more so, you are a huge fanatic about the the comic book itself the original uh comic book series and the graphic novel that spawned off it absolutely uh it was a huge giant part of my life so that's why you're here man i'm glad we figured out an episode uh like that it all it all worked out you know this, all, all, of all the episodes he walked in on he happened uh, coming on when he I knows know, I know. He's he's I'm, glad, I'm glad we changed it at the last minute from sisterhood to the traveling pants part two I'm just which would have been awesome too i mean seriously right, like you totally could have talked shop about but in the Malagro Beanfield War. I'm go- Thanks. But but yeah. it's okay. It all worked out in the end. We can do that for season two. Save that season two. <laughs> Save some for the sequel. Yeah, it'll be it'll be fine. It'll be fine. But for now, let's uh, let's let's talk about some uh, some raining and how it doesn't happen all the time. Um, yeah. So that uh, that quote is actually not in 
the graphic novel. Is that correct? The It Can't Rain All the Time is not in the graphic novel. So that is just strictly oh, from the so movie. That's just Hollywood, huh? Yeah. It is. There's a lot of things that the movie did, too, that were, like, weird switches that I thought were, like, why would you even bother changing that? Yeah, like, like they put it on film instead of on paper. It's so weird, weird right? It's really weird. <laughs> totally different. So so just, just for transparency, uh, obviously, Derek, you are intimately uh, familiar with this property. I am as well, though not to your level, my man. And... Uh, Ape Alchemy, you have recently read the graphic novel. That is correct. And Nintendo, you've seen the movie tons of times. Yes. And recently. And Boss Rush, you've seen it probably less than the rest of us, but you you were But I have seen it. it, yes, multiple yes. times. And but not recently, but I have seen it mm-hmm. a few times. Cool. So this is something that we're all pretty, you know, at least on some level familiar with and and have some fandom for. But like before we get just dive right on into this uh, the meat of the discussion tonight, which is The Crow. But I do want you to be able to talk about Rough House Publishing. So you're here. You are Rough House Publishing. I know that because I just so happen to work for you. <laughs> well, you're Rough House Publishing, too. I'm always telling you, we're talking about different things. You always say, you have a great booth. And I'm like, we have a great booth. And you're like, you made a lot of money. You like, have we a nice made ass. A lot of money. And you're like, we have a nice ass. We have America's ass. It's it's in the That's fridge. America's ass. Chilling for Actually, later. since since Endgame, I use that so often now. Like, uh, there's a uh, breakfast place that I go to, and there's mm-hmm. this girl who works there. And every time she walks by, I'm like, now that's America's ass. It's, it's worked itself into the zeitgeist. It's, it's in the vernacular. It's in the vernacular. It's in the vernacular. Yeah. Very cool. So, Rough House Publishing, how did you get started? And I know you can swing this around to James O'Barr. I can. I can certainly so please do that. switch around. All right. So, um, I've always been a comic book lover, and I've always been a comic book artist, pretty much. I mean, even when I was in grade school. I would, uh, you know, fold a bunch of pieces of paper in half, make little comics that were just original comics, and I'd pass them around to my friends and whatever. And as I got a little older, I got a little savvy, and I would charge people 25 cents every time they wanted to read it. And they would have to pay 25 cents to borrow nice. it, and then they'd give it back to me. So I became the a hustle. library. I started, I started the hustle really early. You're like, Howl's Moving Library. The first yeah. ever comic rental. Yeah, yeah like, uh, I think uh, one of the first series quote-unquote that we ever did in, in high school was uh, a playoff the garbage pail kids which was called the chop shop kids which was the same exact idea only the kids were completely eviscerated and they you know the same whole like six <laughs> these books these go to 11 yes yeah up the ante <laughs> um like stovetop steve you know the kids burned up and all, all these kinds of different things and i remember me and my friends actually jay uh 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 David, David James, James Ravenna. Ravenna and uh, another friend of mine, Chris Stangland, growing up, we uh, did it together. And uh, so it, the idea of creating content, publishing it, and releasing it has always been kind of something that I've been into. Um, now, I uh, moved to Florida back in 2000, no, 2000, <clears throat> excuse me, I wish it was 2000, it was 1996, and uh, I went to school to uh, become a special effects designer. And originally, I wanted to be a what was called an industrial design technologist, which is a, a, a fancy term for uh, engineer. So somebody who actually makes animatronics come to life kind of thing. Huh. Um, and uh, they kind of sold me on the um, computer animation program because at the time, the big thing around town was that all practical effects were going to completely go, go away, that the industry has been re- revolutionized. And as a result... 
um, we are already antiquated, and we are we are literally counting down the years before that's oh, all. Oh, that's over. brutal. Because I mean, this is like poster. Well, here we are, like, oh, 2019, yeah, was... and we're still doing it, and it's right. been doing it all the way through. Right, right. But so, that's what they thought. They thought, oh, forget it. Everything's going to be pure digital, even though it didn't actually. Nothing, I don't think, looked as good as Jurassic Park for the next 15 years. Right, right. <laughs> but right, and it, yeah, we certainly had a uh, an overflow of uh, the misuse of CGI for sure, for certain, big time. But uh, they sold me on that program, and I was like, well. Right off the bat, I didn't want to do it. I remember saying to myself, well, that's not what I signed up for. It's almost like uh, when Quentin Tarantino said that, you know, he didn't want to change over to digital. He always wanted to film on film. Stay on film. Yeah. And uh, and again. Girls on film. Right. It's not what he signed up for. So I did it begrudgingly because I still wanted to be in the business. And uh, one of the first things that the teacher said to us, I remember us being in a giant class of about maybe 80 kids, 90 kids, a, a giant, huge class of uh, hopefuls and saying that like maybe 10 of you are actually going to go all the way through into the business and maybe graduate the program. You know, really, really encourage y'all. <laughs> yeah, like, um, well, I, I, Two I, of you will die on the bus on the way home today. <laughs> I've been raised uh, in the business by a lot of very tough people. So yeah. I have a tendency sometimes to talk a little bit tough, even the panel we did. Uh, a few days ago, um, I don't want to say tough to the audience, but real. You're a realist, yeah. you know. I um, mean, you have to be in the industry. Like, for instance, there was a time I think in the uh, in the panel where we're like, you know, does anybody in the business? Uh, is there anybody in the audience who wants to be in the business? And nobody raised their hands. And I almost wanted to say, if Good. you <laughs> are one of those people in the business and you didn't raise your hand because you're too shy you're also one of the people that aren't going to make it, you know? Um, but that's what they were telling us, basically. Um, they were saying, look, there's a lot of you who, who think this is going to be easy, and when the ride gets rough, you're going you're gonna to go Bounce. south. Yep. So um, I took it begrudgingly, and um, in the meantime, I was studying on how to present my artwork to editors in order to, uh, to become published. And uh, there was, at the time, I don't know if anybody in the room remembers Wizard Magazine, Sure. Oh, yeah. They Absolutely. came out once a month. Wizard Magazine was like the Bible for uh, Absolutely. for fans and hopefuls in the business and in the entertainment businesses in general. Was that Wizards of the Coast? Or is, is no. that like the same or is those totally no. different companies? No, totally Wizard was a periodical that, that was literally like the People magazine for, for like comic book people. Comic or like kind of like what TV Guide mm. eventually became. Because in the back, you always had the prices. Yes. So it served two purposes. Yeah, so it was right. a comic book buyer's guide right. in the yeah. back. Yeah. And then they would have an expose on two or three artists or yeah. writers or whoever, people in the industry. Uh, and then they'd have fun stuff like, you know, stunt casting. This is back when stunt casting for a film was a thing. Now Marvel does it every movie. Yes, you know? and we yeah. actually talked about this in the Rudger Hauer uh, retrospective a few weeks ago. because we cause, uh, And we posted about it. And a lot of people actually remembered that that particular casting, but they had cast Rudger Hauer as Magneto, and that was just something. And Glenn Danzig was Wolverine. Yes. It's like such a fun thing. And that Patrick Stewart is uh, Professor yeah, X. Yeah, they got that one. But like nobody <laughs> did that back that, right? then. Nobody did that. It was such a weird thing. That's true. And um, now Marvel does it literally Now everybody every does it. Now everybody does everybody it. Everybody does it. Every and single blog and every single website has their picks for everything. Well, before, you know, you couldn't get Robert De Niro, or you couldn't get an Al Pacino, or you couldn't get a Michael Douglas to ever touch right. a it was comic just book like a movie. Michael, they're all raising their hands. Michael Bean as Cyclops, though, in 1993. That I could have seen. Michael Bean? Yeah. Yeah, totally. Absolutely. But um, So, yeah, Wizard Magazine, uh, I remember one issue specifically. They had an article on how to present your work 
to publishers and to editors. And uh, that became a Bible to me. And uh, I started doing a lot of, this was the infancy of the internet too, but I started doing internet research as well on how to present to these folks so that A, you were grabbing their attention, uh, you were only getting the attention that they asked for and, and not trying to like ram your stuff down their throats. Grab but, them by the attention. Grab them by the attention, which is, you know, the short and curlies of attention. <laughs> <laughs> and um, and then off to the races I went. I won't get into the specifics on what they asked you to do, but um, I used to go to, I'd pick a convention, a larger one, and these are comic book conventions. These aren't horror conventions, not yet. Um, and I would literally be the first person in, and I would literally be the last person out, and I would walk that floor all three days, every single solitary day, period. And anybody who would look at my artwork, anybody who would talk to me, I would listen. And one of the things that they told you is whatever anybody has to say, you listen. You don't try to argue your work back to them. You know, when they when they tell you that these these line weights are wrong, you don't go, oh, I was using the wrong pens. I'm sorry. Is it? You just listen. You know, and then you say thank you, and then you take that information with you. And uh, and around that time, I was uh, I was heavily into independent comics. Um, I loved uh, there was a, a black and white boom of comics in the '80s that bled into the '90s, and of course, in the early '90s was the boom of the the image comics revolution, which changed everything. And all of a sudden, you got these smaller companies that were were really gaining a lot of momentum. So the smaller companies got a chance to take a, a piece of the pie. Uh, companies like Caliber Comics, which uh, published Dead World after Arrow sold the rights to Dead World. Um, and Gary Reed was the publisher. And Gary Reed, uh, he published uh, The Crow, uh, and that was one of the books that was introduced to me by my cousin. And I remember him saying to me, you've got to read this. Now, this is back when it was in a single-issue form. It was supposed to be, I believe, a six-issue series. And Caliber never released all six issues because... Independent comics, uh, artists, everybody, uh, we kind of work on our own time. It's not like Marvel where like there's a hard deadline. This book is coming out no matter what. We are talking about very intimate tales that, as far as The Crow will get into in a bit. But uh, they published those books when the books were ready. So, you know, book one would come out. Book two might not come out for half a year, uh, you know, and so forth and so on. So they got about three issues in. And my cousin came over one day, my cousin Christopher, and he's like, you've got to read this book. It hurts to read. And that automatically just got my attention. And um, and again, I didn't know at the time how personal this story actually was. Right. I just knew how personal the story was to me and how much it resonated to me. You know, this was the uh, the Generation X generation, and this was the comic book that kind of fell into that whole... Um, uh, techno industrial era of music, you know the Nine Inch Nails era. You know we were coming, we were coming out of the hair metal era into yeah. the alternative yeah. era. Things were just changing all around. Commercial was going away. A lot of independent stuff was just becoming the norm. Independent music. Um, so uh, that's how that started to resonate with me as far as that went. But when I broke into the business, uh, I broke in obviously with independent publishers. And the idea back then like was with a crowbar. Like with, that's with a, a, you broke in like with a crow, crow bar. bar. Oh. I raised the crow. Oh, bar. James Crow there. Bar. Yeah. <laughs> oh, gonna my. leave that there, right there in the ether. Go, please, it, go now. It, it's funny. I was on the way here. I was just on the phone with Mark Bloodworth, who also worked for uh, Caliber, and uh, he was just at a show with James Obar a couple weeks ago. Um, uh, they were part of a book called Caliber Presents. Caliber Presents was like. Uh, 
it was like a catch-all book for their catalog. So Caliber Presents came out, and it would have short stories of all the different things that they published that month or published that year. And that was actually the very, very, very first, I don't know if you guys know this, the very first Crow story that was ever published hmm. is in there. And it's not in that graphic novel, and it's nowhere else. You have to get it in that book or you don't have it. Wow. And it's just a nice little, it doesn't add anything to the story. It's just a nice addendum, you know, if you will, to what's already there. They don't um, even include it in the director's cut or anything like that? No. And uh, when we get into the director's cut, we'll talk about my feelings on it. Um, but no, it's its its own little thing. Oh, that's it's, cool. It's that's really, cool. really add, cool. Yeah, add some value to that. Beautiful artwork in it. And uh, But anyways, uh, yeah, my cousin was like, this hurts to read. And I'm like... Well, why? So I started reading it, and as it went on, I noticed that the narrative right off the bat was very um, uneven. It didn't play out like a movie. It didn't. It wasn't like a three act structure. It wasn't like, um, you know, the, the the narrative didn't even suggest what was going on. I, I think that it kind of tips the hat on what is really going on here. About three quarters of the way through the graphic novel, which is about a hundred pages in. It's just it was a really interesting way to read things because it was it was all um, visceral energy. And uh, and again, I don't want to jump around too much. I'll, I'll finish up with the roughhouse stuff. And then, of course, we'll come back to that. Sure. Yeah. But uh, when I broke into the business, the idea was, you know, we don't have a lot of money. If you draw something, we'll publish it. That's the deal. Um, so I learned early on not to be that guy that's always like, well, I do one hundred dollars per page or nothing. Because I'd literally still be doing nothing. It's just, you know, you have to kind of know where your battles are, especially in the beginning. You have to, you know, take your comeuffins and whatever. At the end of the day, people want to publish you. Um, and I started learning through the process how the publishing business works. Uh, and it's not necessarily like a vicious business. It's just the nature of the business. Not a lot of people have a lot of money in the beginning to, to do this. So a lot of it has to be, you know, kind of a handshake agreement kind of thing. Or you do it on spec or whatever it is. And a lot of times the book doesn't sell and nobody gets paid. So you do take those kinds of things. But I noticed on the other end of that that there were just a lot of... Uh, and this happens a lot of in the independent film uh, industry as well, especially the local sector, where uh, someone will work on a movie and you have a bunch of principal actors and they'll work on this thing and people all work for free and they donate their time for months and months and months and months and months. Then something happens and they call up everybody and say, hey, the, the movie's not coming out. And by the way, that ten dollars that I said I owe you—that's never going to happen either, <laughs> you know. And it just—and in the—in all forms of the entertainment industry, this happens. And uh, I started noticing that it—it it started happening a little bit more maniacally uh, in the comic book industry. You know, the comic book industry is a artist-driven business. The art is the reason you came. Yes, of course, the writing and everything else. But let's face it, the medium is art. Right. Um, and artists are the ones that are there. Can you swear on this podcast? Oh, fuck yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> fuck the no. artists one, are always the <laughs> ones that are habitually sucking hind titty. Always, you know. Um, and artists are such a passionate. I, I, do, I do believe that was, that's the first time that particular phrase has been uttered on the pod, podcast. Which is good. Uttered on the podcast. Uttered. Oh, yeah. Hind titty. Utters. Okay. But um, and it's funny because comic book artists are very passionate people. I've met so many passionate young comic book artists that are like, I will even me when I started doing some bigger projects. I'm like, whose leg do I got to fuck, huh? <laughs> to do this. It was as simple as that. Like when I started working on Zombie, 
Uh, and I don't want to get into all of those, but I have worked on uh, Lucio Fulci's Zombie, Lucio Fulci's Gates of Hell. Uh, we published, uh, I had another publishing company prior to this one. We published a Phantasm comic book, one, uh, a, an original version of Gates of Hell that ended up becoming uh, what Ebon Press is now publishing now. Uh, and we did a Halloween book with Michael Myers in it. You also did, as you previously mentioned, Dead World. Yes, uh, Dead World. So I had left the business after the Halloween book. That was 2003. Uh, I had a falling out with my partner at the time, and just things were just not good. You know, like we had we had struggled a lot. We had lost a lot of money. Um, we didn't get too far. We didn't really push the needle as far as I think we wished that we did. And uh, amicably, I went into corporate America. I was a suit for eight years. Actually, well, longer than that. I was a suit for almost 20 years, but... Um, during that time I was, I just left the business altogether. Um, and around maybe 2011, 2000, uh, 2010, 2011, I met the other partner in, in rough house who would eventually be rough house. His name was Mike Wason. And, uh, he had mentioned that Gary Reed, who is, uh, who is caliber comics, uh, was doing a new dead world book and was doing like an anthology kind of thing where he was asking for a lot of other artists got me in touch with Gary and Gary is literally the person that brought me back into the business with dead world. And, um, again, dead world was one of those comic books back in the day, independent comic books that was just, uh, right up my alley growing up. It was full of, um, all the things that you love about, you know, an independent horror comic book. It was like watching a European horror film and, um, dead world had a lot of uh, different artists that had come through. Vince Locke mm-hmm. was the biggest one. He's and the I, one who started I, I've heard you describe Dead World as uh, basically the Walking Dead of your generation. It is absolutely. Not only is it the Walking Dead of my generation, but Walking Dead literally stole like I'll probably about a dozen either plot points or visual cues from that series. Like zombies have ears. Can you believe it? I mean, they have ears now. I don't I mean, know. I mean, I'm I'm looking at this cover and I'm just getting a humongous like Fist of the North Star vibe out of it. So North Star is actually one of the companies that James Abar used to work for, work with, because he was an independent, independent guy. And for a while, he's known for The Crow, but he did some other things, too. There's a, there's a comic book, I believe, North Star puts out called... Uh, so, so that's pretty funny. There's just, I just want to point out the, the confusion. Uh, Boss Rush is referring to an anime called Fist of the North Star. It oh, just so happens. I'm talking about North yeah, Star. So right, it's, yeah, it's funny. Um, that was like, uh, you know, karate guys with splody heads. I mean, I think that, that kind right. of sums it up. Yeah, pretty much. Karate guys, splody heads. Yes. Lots, you, of, lots of splody heads. Lots, so much splody. Anyway, please continue. <laughs> yeah. So um, one of the things that Dead World had that, that we've kind of continued with even to this day um, is they had a, a what was called a not for wussies cover. And then they had a tame cover. So, uh, exactly for Wussy's cover. Yeah, (laughs) this is exactly so. Comic shops could choose whether they wanted one or the other on their shelves. Yeah, and uh, Vince would usually do the graphic cover, and uh, for a while he was doing the tame covers too. But as time went on and and, uh, everybody got busier, um, the tame covers used to go to somebody else. And um, James Obar used to pick up those covers. Um, we have one here in the studio. Uh, we can post it on the Facebook group. It's uh, it's a James O'Barr cover that he did for, I believe it's Dead World number one. Nope, 12. 12. 12. Okay, number one, two, one, two. Not one and two, but just it, one. Two. If I have to, if I have to uh, 
try to put a pin in exactly when James started doing work for Dead World. I'm going to say it was around issue 10. Mm -hmm. He started doing some work on the inside. I remember he uh, penciled and then Vince Locke inked over his work. And on one issue, he just drew it all the way through Mm -hmm. under the pseudonym Johnny Zero. Johnny Zero, which has Boss Rush pointed out off mic so astute kind of funny by the way. Mm-hmm. because it has a the j from james and it has a zero the zero is uh for o bar it's kind of cool sure so to kind of jump <laughs> I'll, back I'll take the credit <laughs> whatever it makes me sound good so i'll take <laughs> yeah, it yeah um so just to kind of put a, a a button on what we were talking about with roughhouse uh out of that uh res- resurgence for me going back to uh working comics for uh, gary reed yeah um kind of gave me the the inkling to to do an independent publishing thing again and originally it was only going to be a housing if you will to publish my own independent stuff not necessarily rough it could be rough it could, it could be, be slightly abrasive it could be a pillow fight it could be uh you know i mean it was just housing. bats with nails through it it could be anything in between yeah. but at the time it could be a bungalow it could you know it's just you don't know because it was housing though. yeah and i look at my projects that i have in my head as movies you know i had maybe like four or five movies in me and i was going to go into them and get out uh and it was going to be rough house and the idea the original business model was going to be that i created them and then each one would go to a different company to publish so it would be a rough house production but idw would publish it yeah. rough house publishing uh would would do the book over here but maybe dark house uh, dark horse or uh, avatar would take it and that was going to be the original plan and then as we got acquisitions and opportunities we just kind of uh we just kind of stayed the course like whatever the opportunities were we would take advantage of them but the idea behind rough house always was the same which was to to shelter myself as an artist as a creator from the trappings of the business at that point in time i've i learned enough about the business i learned enough about business um in order to handle myself professionally and 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 not be sinking in the business i could i could sit i could always sit in a room with with people and articulate myself and get my points across uh so this was a a natural extension of that and rough house was born out of that nice yeah, just as long as we can uh, get the next one out. Yes. Right. <laughs> that's as good as you need to do. In this business, that's that's a great accomplishment. Very true. Just keep putting out and, one uh, more book. Mm-hmm. Just, just super quick, uh, because it's fun, we did just a couple weeks ago have a hell of a time at Rock and Shock in Worcester, Massachusetts, you and I, and we... Uh, we certainly did. We, uh, we I was there. Ate, ate Bit Alchemy, helped out on Saturday. It was Hi, awesome. Guys. It I'm was so busy. It was so busy. That's what we needed. And uh, Well, you guys great ran, ran point. Like, uh, you guys have all of my props because I was the... Uh, I was the wet noodle on Saturday for sure. Oh, hey, whatever. But I yeah, mean, so... Uh, cross yeah, between yeah. exhaustion and just <laughs> not, uh, you know, turning the light on to know that my phone wasn't exactly plugged and, into the wall and still and yet and still it didn't matter because holy shit we you know we did awesome we had an amazing weekend it was really fun and i uh, would love to you know thank everybody who came out to the rough house publishing booth and hopefully we will Absolutely. see you again sometime soon i can't wait i mean now i want to do more shows yeah, yeah <laughs> now you know i'm going against my better judgment and i'm like well maybe we can do we can and, tack uh, on a couple yeah, more yeah, why not yeah, and just like extra extra quick i do want to mention our current series which yes. is gore shriek resurrectus because we just put out issue number two yes which debuted at rock and shock yes it did and it sold like freaking hot cakes nice yeah. hottest cakes That's like awesome. it, it seriously it was a um 
it was an eye opener. It was really cool because, uh, as we know, in you know, inside mm-hmm. baseball knows. Uh, that was the book that did not want to be published at all. No, there was <laughs> a lot of tribulations. Yeah. There's a lot of history that goes with it. And there's even to the point where I'm starting to wonder if there was anything supernatural going on over <laughs> here because like two days before I was getting ready to, to send it to the publisher, my pens just decided... The pens don't decide anything. No, you know, these pens didn't. Are inanimate Derek, these they pens don't decide, decide a damn thing. Decide. They, they just uh, decided... Desire to, des- to decide. Yes. They decided not to work. <laughs> and uh, my ink started coagulating in, in air in real time. It was just... It was weird. But anyways, we got the book out, and uh, it literally... Jay, uh, my friend Jay, has a... Uh, a uh, a term that he uses about this is something about, I keep wanting to say the book was written hard and put away wet, but that's not it. <laughs> uh, but it's something like, you know, we're taking it off, the press is dry and, and uh, wet and we're, we're, we're delivering it sticky. I don't know, but it all sounds like something that she said. I don't know. I'm just going to stop right here. It all does sound like something she something. said. It all sounds like something she said. Something that she said. Right. There were words spoken and but, they were, they traveled through the air into, into that's ear That's like holes. the more formal way of saying that's what she that's what she said. That was something that she said. I picked. That's the, like eat. Thou must eateth a bag of Richards. <laughs> <laughs> I literally picked that book up hours before that show, and uh, that's unheard of. But not unheard of for me, but unheard of for. And anybody. then we had to actually go back and uh, and pick up more. Yes, we on did. Saturday, Saturday night, because uh, we were we were absolutely going to run out. So. I brought a copious amount to the show, thinking that was going to take us through. And wrongo, wrongo once again. Yeah, pretty cool. And also, uh, you know, just a little toot toot. That is my comic book debut so i'm just saying it is absolutely and aka steve ann sampson if i if i do expound upon what you just said for a second like out of of all the stories in that book that individual story which is called the nowhere man now um also has a very storied history and steve when he came in to work on it he was literally taking a a story that didn't have a through line or, or, or a strong narrative and he was bringing to it whatever the personality and the flavor was going to be. And I remember when I finally sat down to read it, because I was the one who did the lettering for it, uh, I literally took his script and was it was working on the artwork page by page. So the narrative started to form. It was almost like going into a dark room and then your eyes starting to adjust and adjust and adjust. And then finally you can see the room. Um, if you read that story now... It plays out in my eyes. It, it literally gave me the chills because it plays out like an Ari Aster film um, where if you guys have seen Hereditary or A Midsummer, it's that really like sickening uh, gut punch of a, of a feel where you just you have this sickness for humanity in general. And uh, my, my hat's off to you, man. I really, really love that story. That's my favorite one in the book. Nice. By far. Wow. That's, that's not just awful. blowing smoke well, up thanks. your ass. No, it's not. Certainly not. That's a, that's, that's a good one. It's good to hear. I don't smoke, so I don't blow anything. Right. Yeah. Exactly. No vape. <laughs> nope. I'm a scientist. I don't blow anything. Um, <laughs> Rather, yeah, no so, one blows me. So, okay. I think that's, that's a... Oh, wait, wait, real quick one. Yes. Okay, I'm done. Okay. I think it was a pretty pretty nice, like, uh, very heartfelt uh, presentation of, of the company and uh, where you come from. And I, I you know, it's, it's clear that your, your beginnings are interwoven with the man uh, we're going to start talking about right now. Actually, you've started already. But James O'Barr, I definitely want to continue talking about before we get into the meat of the book itself. This is, uh, this is a guy who now, you know, my knowledge isn't going to match yours, but... What I know, I know. I have I have met James once one time, uh, and he was. I was ex- extremely 
nervous to meet him because I had seen that this uh, this interview with him that he recorded in his basement, and it was a feature on uh, one of the one of the Crow DVDs. And it's just kind of him at his art table, and he's he's talking, and, and he's very awkward, and he won't look at the camera, and and uh, you know it's it's really it paints this picture of of this man in thirty minutes where you feel like you know him so intimately, and he he has no filter, he he has you know just he's he's just an open book, but also an open wound in some respects, and he's just you know tells you all the stuff that you would you know. I mean, yes, it's an interview. You're not actually sitting there with him, but still, it's like the the degree of, you know, how much pain you're you're able to glean from this one interview, and you know that of course informs how he wrote the book, why he wrote the book, and um, so you know what I recall. I actually just rewatched this uh, last night, and um, I you know the James that I met was you know. This was when he was 40. I probably met him 10 years after that because um, he, he just ha- so happens to mention that he had just turned So when 40. he was 30? No, wait, I got that backwards. Hold on. <laughs> <laughs> Math is hard. It's okay. Um, and uh, and he was he was like just a vastly different person. He didn't have the, the, the you know, the problem looking people in the face or, or anything like that. Like he, he was very nice and, and, you know, it was a nice interaction because, you know, obviously we've met plenty of, of people at conventions. Not all of them are super cool. Some of them are douchebags. Some of them I are... I said I was sorry. Jeez. Yeah. I mean, besides you, you're always a douchebag. Some bag. of them are not like us. Yeah. Some of them, you know, not everyone's Felissa Rose, you know, but because um, she's awesome. <laughs> Nicest woman in horror. But anyway, uh, so yeah, like like this, this guy was very cool. So I was extremely nervous and he, you know, disarmed me instantly because I had uh, Ernie Hudson was at that con. So I had I had taken the sleeve of the DVD and I had him him sign it, and had a great little conversation with Ernie Hudson about the crow, and uh, he was wearing a shirt made I uh, aside Ernie Hudson at the time was wearing a shirt that said Winston rules and it was made by a fan it was like felt felt letters <laughs> on on a shirt it was really funny he's like yeah a fan made this for me like a couple years ago I just like it. it's really fan funny. is my daughter <laughs> Winston rules I'm like yeah it is anyway so um. So I go over to James and, you know, I'm, I'm super nervous and I'm expecting, you know, the guy from the interview and all this stuff. And and I, I hand him I hand him the DVD sleeve and I was like, yeah, I, I he's like, oh, oh, you found Ernie. And I said, oh, yeah, you know, you know, how, how much and we're just kind of talking. And then I was like, oh, how much uh, I, I don't see any prices. How much for for your autograph? He's like, he's like, please, dude, you think I'm Ernie Hudson? He's like. I don't charge for my freaking autograph. You know, it's like, it's just, it's just That's cool. So, so cool. he kind of disarmed me like right, right away. And from that point, it was just cool. And we just talked and he was a cool dude. But in this interview, I think this is, he, he describes it as like a turning point. Um, and a lot of stuff in his life was starting to go right. And he was, his daughter was uh, about to be born. And is, I don't know if he had more, more than just one, one kid. But, um, but, you know, and he, you know, he's describing his wife as being this big life changing thing. And he's finally found true love again. And the guy talks about this at the end, you know, I mean, people don't, people don't say this kind of stuff. And if they do, they sound like they're full of crap, but, but he, you know, wasn't and didn't sound like he was full of crap. And it was just really, really great. Um, but you know, in this interview, he talks about how, you know, the, his girlfriend back in, back in the seventies was, you know, killed by a drunk driver. And this was after a very difficult life. Uh, at that point he had been through, um, 
various orphanages. He didn't. He wasn't actually adopted. His, his birth mother gave him up, and uh, and he wasn't adopted until he was like seven years old. And so he, uh, you know, had these uh, these step. Uh, I mean, adoptive parents, I should say. And uh, he, he described them as, as very hardworking, very blue collar. He didn't really see his stepdad, his, I keep saying stepdad, his adopted father too much. Um, but, you know, he had nothing but good things to say. He was just like, wow, it just put in later in life, he realized like how much he worked and why he worked. And he didn't, you know, they were, you know, not poor. He felt like he never needed anything, you know, but oh my God, his, you know, his dad worked 90 hours a week. And, you know, so he had had like a tough life and he had learned, you know, going through the system to not look at people in the face and not talk to people and all the stuff, you know, just, just regress, regress, regress in, inward. And the way that he, you know, would, would eventually come to express himself was through art and stuff. So, so he, when, when he lost his girlfriend in the seventies, he, you know, obviously felt like, you know, the world or the universe or God or whatever, just, you know, had just kicked him in the balls and then kept kicking and and it's like he had finally found the one good thing and he was 16 when this happened he wasn't he wasn't like a fully grown adult he was 16 but she died and eventually he got to the point uh a few years he said about three years later he started working on the crow and it was only for himself and he said it was it was never supposed to be shown to anybody and it just so happened what's the caliber guy's name you mentioned gary reed is gary the publisher, reed was the publisher he passed away a few years ago and I can only assume it was it was Gary that he was talking about, but you know he said basically there was a, a comic book store in Detroit, and uh, it was Gary's, yeah, yeah, and so it was spawned from there, mm-hmm. and so he was just like a, a patron of the store or whatever, and so he, you know, had this this thing going, and it for ten years he worked on the crow, and nobody fucking knew about it. He would come home, and he would just literally work, you know, work as much as he could. Come home, draw all night till 3 a.m. till he passed out, get up in the morning, do it all over again. And that was his life for 10 years. And eventually it, you know, this Gary Reed was like, asked him at some point later in the 80s, you know, do you have, do you have, do you have anything? They were talking about, oh, maybe publishing something like Gary was looking to get into publishing, I think, at that point. And I don't know, whatever the conversation was, they eventually ended up saying, oh, I have this thing. Hey, bring it in. Oh, cool. Let's try to publish it. Okay. It's a thing. And then it just sold incredibly well. And then it kept going. And I know you said that it didn't go the full run. I think what I saw today when I was looking up stuff is that it ran like the, I think four issues were released and the fifth one was only part of like the graphic novel, maybe. So the uh, they got f- caliber yeah. got four issues in, and uh, the story was not finished yet at that point. Um, right, because the the chapters I have them here. The chapters are um, you probably can recite them: pain, fear, irony, despair, and death. So death was just had not been published at that point. Correct. And the first time that you ever saw it after that, because it left caliber after that. Um, and I do forget the name of the company. There was an intermediary company between Caliber and between Kitchen Sink Press, where the book was re-released again in three square-bound volumes. I've, and again, it had those those subtitles of like you know, but it, there was only three, and the last one was Death. So it was, uh, let's say for the sake of argument, irony, 
uh, something else, and then Death was the mm-hmm. last one. So there were three new covers that were painted, and they were done in a prestige format. After that, that left that company, and the graphic novel was spawned, and that's the one that's most uh, commonly attributed to you know what people have read mm-hmm. from Kitchen Sink Press. And I think, and that's the one that you have. That's the one most of us have. Yeah. Um, and then later on, uh, and we'll get into it later on. But they did a, uh, I guess, a d- director's cut or special edition of the book, which had some scenes that were excised from other issues. Um, but again, one of the reasons why the last book took a little while is that this whole entire book. You mentioned that it took ten years from to do. But what's interesting, and to me, one of the most interesting things about the book as you read it, is it was drawn in order over that 10-year period. So uh, there's no script. He didn't sit down and write a script. This was raw emotion. You know, picture the people that you love in your life. It doesn't have to necessarily be a wife or a girlfriend, but if it is, or if it's a family member or whatever, uh, for me, it's my mother. Uh, there's, there's these very uh, strong, um, unadulterated emotions that cannot be contained. You know, he used his artwork as a way to cathartic. His artwork in drawing the crow was his way of trying to make sense of a senseless situation mm-hmm. in a senseless world. Um, so when he did like the word balloons as as an example, those are all happening in real time. He didn't stick those on either. He drew them on. So if you look at the and I had an opportunity, guys. By the way, uh, as a segue, you guys remember Spooky World? Yeah, yeah when it was yeah. in Berlin, Mass. Yeah, yep, right. So when you went through the hayride, they had like a barn. And you could go through the barn, and the barn had a haunted house. And the, after the haunted house was over, it went into like a, a, a shop, basically, where you could buy like horror. Like there was a little bit of a museum kind of thing, yeah. which had masks yep. from Halloween, whatever. There was a binder this thick, guys, of the original pages of that book. No friggin' way. I got to see probably about three dozen original pages out of that graphic novel Holy shit. and nice. especially awesome. at the time that i did it this was around 94 95 my face could not have been closer to the, the paper like literally i was studying i was pissing people off people waiting to go <laughs> behind me and i'm like just like i'm i'm, I'm like, like okay he stippled here it, right? he used a, he, I'm, I'm just trying to make as many mental notes as possible i already he, finished i'm going for number two i don't care right um <laughs> But it was amazing to oh, see. It's going to be another number one to see his process. Okay, he used chromolite paper here. He used a zip tone on this page. He used a stippling effect over here. So, um, but he his artwork progressed over that ten year period. So, if you watch and you read it now from beginning to end, with that in mind, the artwork goes from good to fantastic. It, it, it literally changes. Mm-hmm. You know, as an artist, you come into your own over time. You know, and then that changes too. Vince's Vince Locke's work in the beginning is much different than what his artwork looks like now. James is the same, and to watch that progress over the course of a over the course book, of the book, because because that's one of the things that I noticed throughout reading the book for the first time recently was that the I mean, like you said, the the narrative is very emotionally driven, which is why you have these like incredible scatter shot of scenes throughout the whole thing, whether or not you're in the present time of the crow, whether it's a flashback, you know, and, and uh, it, it's kind of just like. there isn't a very structured formula. It just sort of is raw. But the art style itself also is constantly ping-ponging back and forth between very gritty and soft edges. And obviously there's, there's, you know, moments where that is done intentionally, but then there's also these very, like, you know, like subtle nuance that you'll notice throughout the rest of the book that you you just sort of see so many different art styles that that are going through and evolving and changing. And it's, 
incredible to know that that was because of an actual real time, you know, evolution of of, of James O'Barr's actual ability to draw. Like that's incredible. I had no idea that 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 the book was written over ten years like that or draw, drawn like that. And I'm probably oversimplifying his process. I know that being an artist myself, you redraw pages. You know, you sure. you, you go ten pages past that, then you go back and you say this one doesn't look good anymore, and you go back and forth. So I don't think it was all real time artwork without being changed along the way. But what's really great about this book as a piece of art, from an artistic standpoint only, not a narrative, is that every single medium is used. Pencil, just pencil renderings are in there in black and white. Painted, uh, brush strokes, uh, technical pens. I'm looking at just one page and that's what I'm seeing. You know, chromolite paper, um, zip tone, uh, everything, every kind of looks like that's pastels. Yeah, everything. I yeah. mean, he, he just did. And one of the things I wanted to bring up, I, I opened up a certain page and I wanted to play off something that you talked about mm-hmm. when you talked about James' uh, fiance yes. passing away. Violently, by the way, she was hit by a car. The car jumped a curb. It was a drunk driver and dragged her. And that's it. And she was gone. And, uh, and again, uh, I wanted to talk at some point about the, the, the context of young love because there's i think it resonates with most of the people in this room certainly you steve uh because of the time that you read it too that's very very important uh because we were young at that time too uh and i certainly have uh some things i'd like to talk about that but one of the things i noticed before i knew all of this when i was just reading the book is that shelly the girl in the book i think her name is sherry in the book uh, and yeah, Shelley in the movie. Is, yeah, the, no. li- the, little, the girl little girl is Sherry. named Sarah in the movie. But right. she's Sherry in the but she's oh, Okay, Sherry. so it's Sherry. So it's Shelley. But Shelley stayed Shelley. Shelley stayed Shelley. But did you notice that Shelley went from a blonde to a, uh, a more aesthetic, uh, ethnic-looking brunette randomly when they would show these flashback shots? I'm looking at one yeah. right now. The reason is I, because I, I was confused about this that. girl right here, that is his real fiance that passed away. So he drew, he would just change the, you know, change the, the, the characters in the book to, to emulate the person who really passed away. Mm. That's really her. And that happened a couple of times in the book. And I remember reading it. And I'm like, why is he kissing somebody else? Right. You know, why? Because this Shelly in the comic book is so is blonde. Blonde. Uh, she, she's, she's very blonde, like straight hair. Blonde, right. Um, has a certain figure, has a certain facial structure. And the other girl has curly black hair. And is more, uh, I guess, European features, for lack of a better term. Right. And it's it's almost like you're just getting like this very quick, like subliminal glimpse behind the curtain of yes. like what what James is actually like channeling when he's when he's That's drawing. That's amazing. Yes. I actually and, never noticed that her hair color changed in this and, page. And yeah. the movie, you know, went with a brunette for yes. for her mm-hmm. character, which I thought was interesting because she's predominantly blonde in the book. But you know, it's I guess right. closer to the real life analog. And I remember Eric never had, and they purposely, if you go through the entire book, they purposely deny you his last name as if it meant something. It doesn't narratively play out to anything, but he doesn't have a last name. And he's an everyman. He's not a musician like in the movie. Mm-hmm. He's a, it, the, they just literally don't tell you anything about him. The narrative suggests that he's like a mechanic because he comes home one day with a toolbox. So which he's is, either a mechanic. Which is what James was. Which was what James was. So if you start to put those pieces together, he's literally using... Uh, the character of Eric is an avatar for his pain. You know, he created a character who could do 
on the inside what he wished he could do, you know, after that incident. Um, and it's just amazing how it plays out in general. Um, so yeah, I've gone long on that, but, um, I think that's one of the reasons why the book plays out so well is that it doesn't follow any uh, the movie certainly does. And we can get into that when we get to mm-hmm. there. But the book has no real narrative structure. Again, it doesn't tell you that he's a ghost. It doesn't even tell you what he is. There's no like right. there's not even a lot of like word balloons that tell you what's right. going on. Right. Or, you just sort of the, accept it. The one thing that it does <clears throat> do cuz the movie, you know, I do want to uh, segue into the movie pretty soon, but you know, the movie does start out with the scene of him exhuming himself so that right there tells you okay again you don't know what he is really but he's dead he's returned from the grave so at least you have that the book does not have that but the book does have the the character of the bird the crow which isn't a real manifestation in the book Correct. He only that. sees it in right. his right there's in no his real bird but it's the, basically his subconscious that's right, all it really right. is but the crow is is guiding him, is helping him. And a lot of times it's the only one talking to him when he's off by himself. And a lot of times, um, you know, it, it's, it's, it's really on his side. It's like, uh, don't think about that again. What are you doing? Eric, don't right, do don't that. Look, don't do don't that. Look, don't look, don't, don't look. look. And it's, and, and then the that goes into a, just like, a flashback of back when he was happy. Because thinking about that is of course the most painful thing of all right now at this point. But, uh, but it's interesting how they changed the way that the crow, uh, what what sort of a character it was, what its purpose was, what it did from the movie and from the, the book. And it is very different. But honestly, uh, you know, I still feel even like after all these years and reading this again recently and watching the movie again recently, I, f- I feel like the, uh, the movie was a darn good adaptation of this book, which I think is very difficult to adapt. I think they changed some stuff, and I think that some stuff was streamlined, and some some stuff was you know made less ethereal uh, because it's a movie. You know, it has to make a little bit more sense. Have to put that scene of him exhuming himself at the beginning. You know, force you know feed feed the viewer a little bit a little bit more than than you know the book did. But um, so I don't know I don't know how your opinion is on that. But before we move on to the movie. 8-bit since you read this recently he did i i it's exciting he, that, that our, our, we have up. somebody in the room who literally just 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 just, just, just read read it it. The sorry time. i had to stand up do and you sure have the yeah do you it. have any any thoughts and uh feelings on the book since it was your first time yeah uh so i would say that reading the book was definitely um you know it was an extremely unique experience because i was reading it knowing that it was a very personal story and knowing that these events were closely tied to James O'Barr's life. And so I think that made what would nowadays, if this book came out, be considered as maybe a little bit, for lack of a better word, like seen before, generic, what what have you, like almost, um, you know, fodder for something like like emo kids and, and something for people to to rally behind. Like when this book came out, there wasn't really that kind of medium. And this is such a genuine heartfelt story um, that it, it just comes across as genuine. It doesn't feel like 
It's trying to speak to an audience. It just, it's the book that James O'Barr needed to make in order for him to cope. And I think that lends like like, survive such an unbelievable, like supernatural, supernatural, like, like heaviness to it. Um, and I mean, there, there is like some, you know, lighthearted moments throughout it. I mean, there's, there's satire there, you know, Eric has, you know, these kind of quips with all the, the various different, you know, thugs and gangsters and stuff that were responsible for killing Shelly and, uh, and, you know, brutally raping her and stuff. But, um, I would say that, I mean, I, I couldn't put it down. Like I read the entire thing over the course of, you know, a few hours at rock and shock. And I mean, it's not a small book and it's definitely, some of the most gripping artwork that uh, you can find, and it's all in black and white. And I think that the the story itself is a story of revenge, but it's also just like sadness and coping and just trying to like figure out a, a path forward after an extremely like traumatic event. And like what what can you even do to make yourself feel better? Like there are so few avenues for people who are are grieving in such like an intense way. And, you know, the crow just kind of embodies that and, and, you know, does, does its best to, to kind of, you know, walk you through those stages of like grief and, and, and coping. And it's, it's not even like at the end of it all, it's like, okay, everything's better. It's just like that needed to happen. I needed to get, I needed to do that. I needed to seek out these guys and 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 kill them all and all mm-hmm. this stuff. But, you know, it's not like a revenge story in the sense that, like, you know, he walks off all smug afterwards. It's like he's, you know... Or fixes anything. Or fixes anything. It's just right. like this, you know, it's, he is an extremely sad, you know, kind of miserable right. soul. But well, it allows him to kind of release and, like, let go of, of, of that and kind of just... Move on. Move on. And that was one of the things that I took away from it, too, is that there's nothing's better at right. all. The world that he lives in is not better. It's it's bad. It's it's horrible. And, it, and it, the two things that I noticed, probably two of the biggest plot differences from the movie and the book, um, he changes nothing in anyone else's life in this book. So he comes across that homeless girl, mm-hmm. uh, that little girl. He doesn't change anything. Right. You like know, Sherry, he, Sherry in the do, book is is so minor. You know, yeah. it, it it is literally, it just serves to show you that he isn't a malicious spirit by nature. Right. It's just he has certain business with certain individuals. Like the the Eric as the crow is capable of being kind to a child. Mm-hmm. But in the movie, they make sherry's character sarah right. um you know like a focal point of of like humanizing him and, and being something that he needs to like help her out in a yes. way and that's just not in the book at all like uh there's a part with um Sh- sherry in the sherry book, in the book yeah uh where he comes and visits her right before he does his final act of mm-hmm. violence and they cry together you know, shows this immense empathy, but it's empathy in the same way that two can- uh, terminal cancer patients would hug each other. Right. Do you know what I mean? Like right. he says to her flat out, I'm sorry for everything that's happened to you and everything that's going to happen to you, mm-hmm. which implies that her life is going to get nothing but worse. Like this, mother this is, is the name of God on the lips and hearts of children. This is the beginning of, of a treacherous road for you. And I, you know, I just want to know you to know that we have something exclusive that we shared together but he didn't change her life he didn't pull her out of that situation he didn't take her to a foster home it's not like that and the other is that he has no absolutely no achilles heel there is no 
a counterplot point that suggests that there's a way to stop this the spirit of vengeance. He's not a superhero that needs a foil. It's like he's just a force of nature at this point. Right. Like he's just doing what he needs All to do. All the way to the end. And I, obviously, you know, I think we're about to segue into the movie and we can start talking about that too. Um, so I'll, I'll save it. I'll, I'll leave it there as far as what I have to say about the book. But um, again, when I was done reading it, that similar to you, Tim, it just, it was a slice of, of, um, that explosion of emotion mm-hmm. and again i I'll, I'll stand on ceremony that this is uh and this is a, a celebration of young love you know right when you get older you love in a different way uh you've uh, you go to different places inside your soul to to find it and to give it and to and to receive it but when you're young uh everything is possible you know you look at somebody else and in the eyes of the young you see an endless and abundant future. Anything is possible. Right. Anything. The, and the other person is, is and we're both like, immortal and we're both going to take on the world. Right. We're going to do everything together and, and you're my world and, and you, your, your world revolves around them. And it's like this, you know, intense emotion of like full a hundred percent devoted love. Mm-hmm. Whereas when you're older, it's like a more grounded, it's, it's more, you know, realistic, it practical, matures, practical it, it, as you said, practical, realistic, all yeah. those key words. Um, and that's the amazing thing about it, you know, that you couldn't write this story. It's because by that point you've learned that fairy tales aren't real. Right. So I mean this is what this is. This is a very adult. It's lamenting very dark. a fairy tale romance, right? Mm-hmm. It's like it's kind of just like the end of, of that chapter. If the fairy tale exists in life, then in a story of fiction, the fairy tale has to equally as dark continue in that same fashion. It has to be cyclical. You know, if if there's wonderment and there's endless um, if everything is endless in life then if the tragedy strikes and takes that dream away then it has to be equal and opposite on the dark side and that's what this book is ladies and gentlemen absolutely derek rook mr deep as fuck there he is (laughs) you've just made us you've just you've just made us so fucking profound like we're usually just we're just goofballs here yeah everything kind of does like everything's kind of quiet right now this is church you you have derailed our format completely with this discussion i fucking love it it's great great this is uh this is uh an appropriately somber episode of the retro reductive cephalo podcast he just shot a load of somber right in our faces well and now we're about to get into the movie so yeah so let's uh let's Uh, let's see how that uh, that fixed your mood there charlie yeah (laughs) let's let's see let's see what we can do uh i obviously want to start uh we'll, we'll we'll just put down some basic information uh, so the movie uh, was released in 1994 it was directed by alex proyas and um it is i think probably most famous at this point and at the time and when it was coming out uh the whole tragedy of the star of the movie brandon lee was tragically killed uh during the filming of this uh of this movie and it was almost done it was only i think two weeks from uh completion or something like that and uh he was uh or no i think it was a few days uh and and yeah he yeah so it was very close to very close to rapping and uh it was during the scene when um it was it's actually played really early in the movie when uh all of the the thugs kind of break into their apartment and and murder them and in that scene one of the actors had a uh, gun that was given to him from the prop department and it uh unbeknownst to everybody because it wasn't properly checked had a a little bit of uh, a dummy rubber bullet uh, was was in one of the chambers and it was fired and it literally killed him. So 
um, this was this was a gigantic thing and is still a gigantic thing. And this was, you know, I think it, it added to the whole sadness of the movie. It's it just it it just you know pushes it over the edge. It, it's a sad story. It's this epically sad story, and it becomes you know doubly epically sad because it was real. You know, there was a, a real element to this. And when I uh, saw this movie, I um, I just remember you know thinking that. I had never been so affected by a movie. Like I liked movies. Yay, that was awesome. But I had never been like gutted by a movie. This movie made yeah. you feel and it made you think in a way that you're not used to yes. cinema. Doing. And I and I, I left the theater. I saw it with my dad and the first time. And it was also the movie the first movie I, I saw in theater three times. That was the first one I ever saw three times. And I, I really just like, didn't know how to like, my dad was like, Oh, that was, that was, that was pretty good. And I like, I didn't even have words. Like I didn't really? know how properly to describe it. Like, like I couldn't good. say it was pretty good or bad or I loved it. I loved it, but like calling it good just felt wrong. It didn't make any sense. So, um, you know, I, I, I don't know, like, uh, so I, I think that that is probably, you know, what what got me. It was this other level. It was the the, the movie itself, yes, but also what happened to Brandon really uh, hit it home for a lot of people, including myself. And I did become fairly obsessed with this uh, with this movie, and and then I went backwards and I read the, the the book after. So obviously, you came from the very very beginning basement, like they were putting out issues, and you were like already a humongous fan of this when this movie came out. But for me, my entrance to it all was the film. So, um, you know, I think that um, for me personally, and, you know, if you have different opinions, Derek, like 100%, let's talk about him, you know. But Fight him. Personally. Fight him on it. I And I feel like we're going to disagree on this. I, I liked all the stuff that they added with humanizing him. And I think that, I don't want to say it was missing from the book, but it was a layer that elevated it for me. I didn't have a problem with adding an Achilles heel. You know, obviously, when you take it and you want to turn it into a narrative for a film, you have to consider uh, the the structure of story. Even with Watchmen, they had to they had to cut a lot of things down on purpose so that the movie is palpable to a, an audience. Right. You don't necessarily have to pander to the lowest denominator of that audience, but you have to give them a story, a story, if you will. Um, so I don't mind that. What I did mind about it, and I only minded it after the fact, was there's an assembly cut of this movie, and I want to spend a little bit of time talking about that eventually, um, that I think plays out much, much better. Let's talk about it. Um, well, the narrative plays out a little bit different. Um, a lot of the scenes are extended. A lot of the scenes are um, more violent. You know, We were in the early 90s, and I don't know if you guys remember, but horror was almost done. Like uh, the most we were getting from horror in like 94, 95, 96 was like, I know well, well Scream, Scream changed the game in, in a meta yeah. format around 96. But prior to that, like let's call it 90 to 95, we weren't getting much and we weren't getting much at all. Uh, so that's when Wishmaster hit, and that's why it freaking failed, because even though it's a friggin' brilliant 80s movie, it came out in the early 90s when horror was dead. And censors were going insane on these movies. They were cutting every piece of violence out like if you notice when he stabs that guy in the hand when he stabs gideon in the hand there. in the pawn shop you don't see it at all yep. i thought that was so weird show me too. where that knife goes into his hand yeah. i mean 
uh, I oh, show actually, me I watched, show me with him with the knife in it. Right. You don't see it. I watched the cut on on Netflix, and it was it was that exact thing because I was waiting for him to stab him, and then like you get him yelling, "Oh God, my hand!" And I actually rewound it because I'm like, I didn't even see the knife going, and it's like it, it is shit like on me. Three, yeah, no, <laughs> who, shit on who me. Who fucking said that? Shit on me. Yep. It's like no one says that, dude. But, so yeah, yeah, there's like Gideon, three frames Gideon where you can see the knife that. going in his hand. It's barely there. So the <laughs> the the movie version was a lot more brutal. Like the original assembly cut was a lot cut. more brutal. The uh, the the scene opens up with that whole you know aftermath of the rape, <clears throat> and they show a lot more of Shelley suffering in real time. Like she's on the ground, she's got lacerations, she's been raped, she's dying right there on the ground. It's it's hard to watch. Yeah. Um, one of the things you'll notice when you watch the movie in the beginning is there's not the greatest ADR going on in that whole beginning sequence. There's a lot of exposition happening really, really quick between the officers and everything yes. else. Yes. And you can tell it's it's a lot of ADR that's not really matching up. And the reason is because it's a cut down from that assembly cut um, where, you know, uh, the the news is broken to Shelly. I'm sorry, to uh, Sarah. A lot different, uh, a lot more blunt force. Uh, it's a lot. Just the whole scene is a lot more of a gut punch. When Eric comes back, um, I don't know if you remember the scene where uh, they blow up the arcade. Sure. Right. Well, there's a woman in that arcade that's tied to a chair. And they want to blow it up with her there so she can watch herself burn. And that's just totally and not even cut. in the cut. Eric is on his way back to his house, uh, his apartment, and he's there when that arcade blows up and those guys leave and that woman falls into his arms burning and like she's she's burnt up and she's dying and when she falls into his arms that's the first time that he starts to feel uh that he can see through other people's experiences and emotions and, and eyes um and I he think, realized that she never got that high score in centipede right now and that's why he threw her totally. back into the fire. Yeah, right. Yeah. She like, just you, worthless. You lousy piece right. of garbage. But, but, that, but that is interesting, Derek. That, that's really interesting because I always felt it was weird that he just randomly came out with that in the, in the scene with Albright in his apartment because there's no reason for him to have known that he could even do that. Right. And he also recoiled like, I mean, it, it felt like when he recoiled, it did feel like it was the first time he was doing that. So... Mm-hmm. It's strange because like he knew he had the power, but then like the emotions were so strong that he wasn't. Yeah, like, I just think it was that. that it was so powerful. So, so every time yeah. he touched like Gabriel the cat, this woman who who had had been. Oh, that's in the explosion, true. He, he did he did get some flashes with the cat, but but he didn't. He wasn't aware of those those powers. You know, those powers hit him, not the other way around. It wasn't like, "Hi, I'll touch Gabriel and find out what happened." Right. He t- He goes to, to hold Pick his own cat, cat, and he gets bombarded with. The rape that he didn't get a chance to see because he was already dead and uh with this woman when she falls into his arms the first thing he gets to see is the guys who murdered him you know running out and yep. getting into their car and taking off um so you had mentioned the skull cowboy uh the skull cowboy in the movie was excised altogether but uh the crow in the movie had no uh he had no dialogue. It wasn't uh, something that talked to him or whatever. In the movie, obviously, the the it bird. was a bird, and yeah. all he did was follow it. The bird would take him to the next victim uh, or his, his next act of vengeance. It was the skull cowboy that laid down the rules, and he would appear. He was like an apparition. And the thing is, in the assembly cut, uh, at the very end, he kills all four of the major bad guys, and he's done. Top Dollar is not one of those guys. He, the four guys that committed the act, he was supposed to come back, kill those guys, and leave. And the skull bo- cowboy says very early on, if you interact or try to change the, the lives of the living, you will become immortal. You'll lose all your powers. So 
let's go back through the movie a little bit. So, uh, fun boy, that scene. He comes in. He does the whole thing with the hand. He gets shot in the hand. His hand heals. Jesus Christ. He shoots. Uh, he whacks the gun out of fun boy's hand. Fun boy shoots himself in the leg. He drags him into the uh, bathtub. to the bathtub and to the bathroom because he's waiting for him to wake up. Okay. Uh, he does the whole thing with the, the lady. You know, mother is the name for God. And he pulls, he extracts the Morphine's heroin or the morphine out of her, out of her, out of her veins. Yeah. By doing that, he is going against what he was told not to do. He just made himself mortal there. So he goes into the next room. I don't know if you noticed, but up to that point, he's wearing basically a shirt like I am. Uh, his black, black pants and everything else. It's black. After that scene, he's got duct tape all around his arms, his yep. forearms, and all around his stomach. It's because directly following that scene, when he takes out the the drugs and tells the mother to leave, Fun Boy grabs and it, there's there's a setup shot where the the um, straight razor hits the sink. Remember? Yep. You see the straight razor yep. at the sink, and it never comes it back. Defense in, she's and holding it as defense. She's holding it as defense. She just drops it, yeah. And they show it. They, they're trying to tell you that this is part of this setup. Uh, he throws Fun Boy into the, into the tub. He does the thing with her. The, the razor is there. He tells her to go home. She goes home. Fun Boy comes back to life. Oh, he, comes, he wakes up. He grabs the razor, and as he's walking into the next room, starts slashing the shit out of Eric and Eric's realizing for the first time that he's feeling everything. He's totally mortal when this is happening. He's getting slashed across the back. He's getting slashed across the arms. That's why he was getting all the the, yep. the defense wow. wounds that he was getting. And that's why in every scene after that he's got the black duct yeah, tape. Yeah, I never understood why he had that. Yeah, because he just like that's he just why. decks himself out in the because tape. Those wounds never healed. Those wounds never healed. So he had to wrap them up. And he almost died in that scene and he barely got it to the point where he killed him so at the very end after he kills all the four guys and he goes to lay himself to rest he hears uh sarah screaming and he goes to run in the church the skull cowboy appears now they didn't do the special effect shot but this scene is on youtube it is this deleted scene and he says if you go into that church you need to know that you go in as a man so if you watch the movie as it played out in theaters knowing that he knows that he's walking into a situation he might not walk out of. Mm. He doesn't have any powers at all. And he's trying to make everybody else in the room believe that he still does. So when he approaches uh, Top Dollar, who's there, he's trying to fake him out into believing. You know, Top Dollar doesn't know anything about the powers or whatever. Right. He knows he has a gun and he's right. going to shoot a guy in front of him. And when he shoots him, that's when, when he's like, ah, oh, fuck. He's realizing that, yeah, you're right. I don't have any powers anymore. Right. But I always hated in the movie that we saw the actual final cut of the movie where it was just this quick throwaway line uh, by Bai Ling, who's like, you killed this, you know, yeah. the crow is his strength between yeah. the land of the living and the, dwe- you know, yeah. the dead. I'm like, where the fuck did that come from? You guys were in, driving in a car. Well, you I'm, know? I'm glad I threw up my quote down in the beginning. Yeah. yeah I mean, <laughs> all of a sudden, like, where the fuck did that come from? It just, But obviously, when you change the structure of the movie, you need to somehow convey that to the audience so mm-hmm. that the end plays out. So all of a sudden they threw, because if you notice, they said, kill the crow, destroy the man. Right. Did the crow ever die? No. Nope. They, they shot the crow. Did the crow yeah. die? The crow didn't die. He's still flying around. He pecked that girl's eyes out. Right. You know? Yeah. yeah. So It's not really a crow. It's so a, it's I feel a like it, 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 they wounded it, but yeah. Yeah. Like, so, oh, it came close. But they didn't say Enough wound to, the crow yeah. and destroy the no, man. No, I know. Yeah. No, it's interesting, you know, and I think this is probably all... Um, you know, that would have been really interesting, too. I mean, it's it's really interesting overall, knowing all this behind-the-scenes stuff. I didn't know a lot of that. 
And uh, that's that's really cool. I never knew why he had electrical tape on his arms, and like that is just really really cool. But like, um, yeah, I I think it sort of does make some sense when you're without eye rolls and saying, oh fucking Hollywood. I think it does. Uh, like certain stories do need to be reeled in, and this is why I think that many Stephen King books don't work well as movies. Right, you got to uh, make it more palatable for a wider audience. Yeah, and, you want to want people to see the movie. Yeah. And also, it just sort of also needs to like be succinct and streamlined, yeah, yeah. like a digestible like, narrative. Yeah, that you can so watch, I think like, that in perhaps, and and I'm just guessing here. I all I'm saying is I could see it if somebody said this, where okay, we're gonna have this whole character introduced who's a little confusing, the Skull Cowboy, who I was always really fascinated with. And I think he's very visually cool, and and a lot of people we haven't mentioned it, but Michael Berryman from uh, the Hills Have Eyes, the original Hills Have Eyes, was actually. Uh, playing the, the part and uh you know definitely like cool but uh, is it a bridge too far do we need a character like that well they could have said all right we don't really need the skull cowboy because we have the crow but they made the decision early on clearly unlike in the book the crow's not going to talk probably would have been cheesy probably would have come off wrong would have been laughable i think that was the right decision to make even though i love it in the book when he talks to the crow and the crow talks back well he doesn't really talk to the crow the crow talks to him he never really says anything back and i i love those parts like when he's like eric come on you're being stupid like don't look you know i love that and it really is the only like levity in the book but in the movie, it wouldn't have worked, I don't think. And so, okay, so they're like, well, the crow is going to fulfill both roles, but he doesn't talk. So you can't explain all that shit. So I think then they're like, we're going to have this. So just by getting rid of one character, you really have to restructure your entire Yeah, so the whole movie. thing. And they're like, oh, let's have a spooky sister, and she's going to be like spiritual and just kind of guess that this is the you know and we're gonna just buy it because she's spooky and in between you know frying you know, people's cooking eyes. eyeballs and eating them like the doritos yeah <laughs> i like the pretty eyes <laughs> whatever she says there was uh, yeah the ironies in the movie if we're gonna i, I we the all love the movie pretty good so to criticize it i don't think anybody really wants to do but if we're really going to look at it with a critical eye um that movie was like one albrecht scene away from becoming a buddy cop movie and that's one of the things that I remember early on that I had. I didn't take exception to because I love the movie. I saw it literally, I think, six or seven times in the theater. Wow. Uh, once was in the drive-in. But the, the movie was so dark that seeing it in the drive-in was literally, we were all looking at a black <laughs> thing. I mean, there was nothing to see. Yeah. Literally, we watched the movie and didn't even see it. Um, <laughs> but it is just so funny because the movie is just so damn dark, you know? Yeah. yeah. But uh, it, it, and, and, uh, if I'm going to say it in a way that's not so arrogant, um, it was by doing that, by making him have people that he can interact with in the real world, it undercuts that somberness that we talked about, that loneliness right. that we talk about, because now he's got a friend. Now I got somebody I can, he, like literally Albrecht goes to war with him in that movie. He's yeah. like, okay, at the end, okay, I got I got you back, you know? Yeah, And totally. they're doing the whole quippy thing of, you know, like, so... Uh, I thought you were supposed to be immortal. And he's like, yeah, well, I'm not anymore. You yeah. know, and all that kind of thing. <laughs> I was. I'm not anymore. You know. It was what? Hey, man, don't skip me. out on the onions. Yeah. <laughs> give me onions. Give me onions. Give me lots of onions. Man, you got to put the mustard underneath the Under, hot dog. Give me, give me that thing. Let me do it. If I was that guy, I'd never sell him another hot dog. Make your own. You I know. Fucking... I was like, wow, I can't believe that guy just let this I got dude tell him how to make hot he's dogs. He's like his one customer. I mean, him and the kid. I mean, right. well, as far as we know. It's all he does is make hot dogs. <clears throat> this guy's showing him up. 
But I just remember that, like, after reading the book, obviously, and feeling that gut punch, I did feel that there was just, if there was any more levity, it might have undercut the the feelings and the emotions that we were supposed to feel. Because I remember the first time, I remember being in the theater and seeing the the scene where he grabs Gabriel and has that first mm. uh, episode when he sees her get raped. Guys, literally, like, and again, we're talking about being young and, and just, you know, feeling love on a, on a different level. I couldn't breathe. I was just riveted. I was watching it, and I'm like, <gasps> I'm in my seat. I just wanted to get up and stop this from happening. Like, I wanted this to stop. I wanted to do something, I, you know, and I kept thinking about my girlfriend at the time. It was funny because, like, my friends used to say, you know, you guys remind me a lot of these two because my girlfriend at the time was blonde. Her name was Allie, Sherry, Derek, Eric, you know, whatever. And um, and I dressed up as, crow, as the crow for, like, three years in a row. I was, like, 150 pounds at the time. It worked out. Just <clears> same like, now I'd be, uh, now Not I'd even have on be, Halloween. Like, now I'd have to be the fucking cow, you know? But anyway (laughs) but uh it was like and i remember having a hard time with that scene so many other times after i watched it it took a long time before i could finally digest it and get over it because you felt what that character must have felt because we were all there we were all growing up at that same amount of around that time um the world was infinite with possibility Mm -hmm. and to see that just tragically taken for no fucking good reason yeah I think that was the point that the the whole movie was trying to take is that this whole world we live in is random. Mm-hmm. You know, I could come to you guys tomorrow and say Rough House is over. I found out that I'm dying in 10 weeks. Whatever. I mean, shit happens all the time. You know, Jay? Oh, I'll, I'll, yeah. I'll talk to you off mic. Okay. But anyway. Um, yeah. Huh. One, um, of, one of our brethren ended up two days in the hospital uh, two days before Rock and Shock, and I didn't know it. Wow. It can happen that fast. Fucking A, man. Anyway. And I'm just learning this uh, right this second. Uh, and I was hesitant. I, I pulled back and I, I, I decided <clears throat> to let it go. Oh. But uh, two days in the hospital because of chest pains. So, so uh, things can change overnight. Hug your loved ones, folks. Hug them tight. Um, so, Boss Rush, Nintendo, obviously you guys have not gotten a lot of, uh, to say in this episode. Uh, I really like to give, <clears throat> sorry, give the mic to you guys. If if there's anything you want to add uh, about the movie, I know uh, Nintendo, you loved it all, about as much as I did back in the day a long time ago. Um, yeah, you know. So uh, I want to give the floor over to you guys and just say whatever you want. And I think uh, at that point we'll we'll just end the segment and get get on to the uh, the octopod of this. Okay. Um, I mean, I don't know what else to add. I mean, you guys pretty much covered everything. Um, I you know I watched the movie a few days ago again and you know by the end of the movie I was just like extremely moved because you no know, like you mentioned before like knowing that it's Brendan Lee's final movie right and just it really adds to the sadness of the whole thing right and you know the girlfriend gets killed tragically senselessly and so did he he was making a movie right senseless right like I mean he was making art but man that sucks Right. And the ironies continue because uh, Brandon Lee in real life was, he had a fiance and they were scheduled to be married that year. Yeah. So That's right, yeah. It, you remember that. And, yeah. um, and then uh, James O'Barr at the time, you, uh, Steve, you had mentioned that when you met uh, James O'Barr that he actually uh, disarmed you, you know, if, if you will. Um, and that those early interviews, he was very like awkward and whatever. Yes. And then since he's become a husband, a father. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, he's had a second chance. 
And uh, I think he's knowing him. He's probably I don't know the man at all, so I could be completely wrong. But if I had to to make an educated guess based on some of the things that he went through when he was younger, uh, he probably looks at life. I'd like to think with a different set of eyes than many of us. You know, where maybe the the fruit he tastes is sweeter. You know what I mean? Maybe the moments that he shares with other people are just a little bit more memorable and and maybe a little bit more coveted because of those those instances. You know, uh, if you take somebody out of the streets, you know, you take a dog who's been beaten uh, out of the streets, you know, the first thing they do is they try to fight you all the way to, to, to being uh, nurtured back to health. But yeah, and then they're skittish, you know, for a long time, it takes a long time for them to warm up. And when they finally do, they know love better than we do. You know, they appreciate love better than we do. So. Right. Um, Again with the fucking deepness. Jesus yeah. Christ. Well, We're down in the Marianas he, Trench now. He, he, be, he befriended Brandon. So right. think about that, you know, like my my creation was born out of tragedy and it ended causing. Yeah, I mean, we talked about Brandon. He was he was very open and, you know, he said he was his friend and, you know, still talks to his uh, his fiance and all the stuff. And uh, but yeah, it's it's crazy. It really is a unique, singular sort of a, a movie experience that I hope never gets topped. Jesus Christ. Like, you know, I don't want this to ever happen again. You know, this is obviously the, the dark Knight and Heath Ledger is the only thing that's, it's been similar. And that had a similar sort of effect as well. And, you know, I mean, that was that movie, whatever you think of it, you can't watch it without thinking that this is Heath Ledger's last movie. Now the movie itself didn't technically kill him, but it's supposedly, you know, uh, playing the part, taxed him to the point where he was taking whatever medications more than normal and he, he mixed something with something else completely totally by accident and no more Heath Ledger so I mean like it really is uh, you know these these things these things are just extra powerful when something like that happens um, but so d- did you want to say any more Joe uh, I know you texted all of us and you said man I fucking love this movie yeah like after yeah, all these I mean, years yeah, the movie as a whole is just fantastic from start to end and uh, again like by the end of the movie when you see Brandon Lee's name and the other person I forget her Leza. name Leza it's like I don't know who she is is she like that's his fiance his fiance okay um, I didn't make that connection until just right. recently um, yeah it's such a great movie. Yeah, it, it really is. I mean, it just hits you. Yeah, and the, the music. Really the music helps too. And yeah, the, uh, the, well, the mu- the the score by Graham Ravel was amazing all the way through. And of course, the soundtrack with all the the, the music of that time. Not the contemporary music. Oh, right. it's just amazing. It still holds up to this so, day. So, so Joe, you were just listening to the soundtrack. What did you think after all these years? Yeah. Um. Well, I, I've kind of like grown away from the that style of music, so it was kind of like foreign to me. But um, there were a few tracks that I, that I really enjoyed. Hmm. Um, I actually I, really like the Cure song, and I don't like the Cure, but yeah, I, I like it. I was going to say, like, I thought the, the Cure is like, I think that's their best song, I, and they I like wrote it a that lot. for the movie. Yeah, like I think what's great about this movie, if I may interject real quick on this, is that when we say it holds up, I think again, using the theme of of young love as a as a catalyst, we're all a little bit older now, you know. Steve, you're a father now. You weren't when you first saw that, so. When you when you look at it now, I had more hair back then too. Yeah, well, we had much more. <laughs> we had more of a lot of things back then. In some in some ways, <clears throat> some would argue, but well, I had less stomach. Oh, that's good. That's good. So <laughs> I think we that's all we all did. Well, you that's have extra stomach now. So if you, if you if you left some that of your more. stomach at home, you have some stomach still with you. 
Yeah, I don't know. I, I, I'm reaching, but <laughs> um, I'm reaching around. Like, oh yeah. When, when you're dark. when you're young and you see the movie, you see yourself as Eric. Like, this is what I would do if someone did that to my loved one. Right. But when you're older, you you can't help but see it from like, and maybe it's just me, but you almost see it from a parental point of view, where you just you're seeing two young people with so much ahead of them just lose their life. It would almost be like losing a daughter or losing a son. And, uh, you know, it brings tears to my eyes just talking about it now, and I'm not a father. But uh, I have some really young friends, you know, and I had a, a particular conversation with a young female friend of mine um, just the other day, and she said, um, I don't know if the relationship I'm in is what I really want. Like, I, I think I'm, I think my heart's telling me to, to go, you know, and I wanted to talk to you which means that she chose me because I've been through those experiences and she trusts me that I'm going to give her the right information. So when we were like at the, at the show at uh, Rock and Shock and we did a panel, uh, one of the last things I said to the audience is I said, you have to approach this, um, this business like you would approach your life. You have to do it audaciously. You know, you have to go in with both feet. You have to be live dangerous, not dangerously. Like don't go out and do drugs and drive fast cars and, and wreck it, drive like you stole it. Live dangerously mean don't, don't pander to everything around you. Don't pan. Don't not say something because you might be offended. Because you know what? You're gonna live. Right. You know, it's okay. Right. I'll, if you say something that offends me, I'll live. I'll be all right. right. Exactly. <laughs> I really will yeah. be. You know, right. and so will everybody. Um, you have to be the best version of you, and you have to go out into the world, uh, feeling that you're you're being the real you. And uh, and that's what I'd like to end this whole thing with because I'm getting emotional, man. Holy shit. Yeah, that's uh, yeah. yeah, heavy shit. Heavy shit for a heavy episode. Yeah, and uh, uh, Boss Rush, any final uh, words? Nope. <laughs> can't not can't talk that. that. No, we're not, not even going to try. Uh, okay. I'll just end up saying something stupid. <laughs> or stupider. Well, by my standards. Uh, uh, let's, let's end the segment there and uh, our discussion on The Crow. That was amazing. Thank you so much, Derek, for coming by. Thank you, guys. Absolutely. Uh, Thank you very much. I know you actually have to go. So what we're going to do is take a really, really quick quick break and i'm gonna ask the octopon this question and for uh what i'll do is when we come back you can answer it first and then if you have to just run you can run uh my question this week for the octopon this is what is a movie that you personally would rage against the dying of the light if they ever tried to remake it no do not remake this movie it is perfect leave it the fuck alone so just think about that and we're gonna go on a short break Hi, I'm Patsy the Angry Nerd, lover of science and sharks. And I'm Ashes Von Nightmare, the real housewife of Transylvania and mistress of Merlot. And, and we're, we're the, the hosts host of, of the Throwdown Thursday, Thursday podcast. podcast, part of the Somebodies and Grand Guignol Networks. Join us each and every Thursday as we break down all the characters you love and love to hate. That's right. We cover characters from movies, television, books, video games, and even real historical figures. Plus, we discuss science. And wine. Like, so much wine. Like, all the wine. We also pit random characters against each other in free-for-all contests voted on by you, the listener, and reveal the results the following week. Did I mention the wine? Like, there's a lot of wine. So join us on our journey through pop culture on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, Podbean, and everywhere you listen to podcasts. And we, and we will, will see, see you next, next Thursday. Bloodworks Scriptorium, the new album from Enchanted Exile. 11 pulse-pounding heavy metal tracks, including... 
embrace oblivion, cold spell on Widow's Hill, and I am the void. Bloodwork Scriptorium, available now on iTunes, Google Play, and pretty much anywhere you get your digital music. So, go get it. Ready to do some picking? It's about that time where we ask you, the audience, to octo ponder this. Welcome back aboard, everyone. All right, we've asked you this week's Octo Ponder this question, which is what is a movie that you, in your opinion, feel that is perfect the way it is and should definitely not ever be remade? Uh, I'm going to pass this over to our, uh, our guest, Mr. Derek Rook, the Rough Master General. Uh, what do you think, buddy? Uh, for me, unabashedly, it's Escape from New York. Escape from New York is my favorite movie of all time. I've probably seen the movie now close to probably like 300 times. times. <laughs> I've, I've watched it so many times. And I, I've, I've resonated with the character of Snake Plissken to the point where like, I was walking around Rock and Shock and people I didn't know were like, hey, Snake. Yeah, <laughs> you know, like I you didn't I, even have to say, call me Snake. Right. You know, I didn't even have to pull the whole, the whole thing. But... Um, to me, it's a perfect movie as it is, but I can understand why they would want to remake it. And they have been actually trying to remake it for the past decade or so. Um, as long as Bruce Kimball gets to be like the Surgeon General of Beverly Hills again. Oh, okay. no, no. The, well, that's a you, sequel. I know it's a sequel, but... Well, Boss Rush, you can't mention Escape from L.A. Uh, in front of this man. I just did. <laughs> oh, man. I'm not even sorry about it. You know it. what, though? He'll live. He will live. He will live. I will live. <laughs> well, if we want to talk about remaking Escape from New York, we have. It's called Escape from L.A. Yeah. Uh, you know, it... It has been remade a couple of times unofficially. Escape from L.A. is the only mm-hmm. official one, as far as, and I'm being very quippy when I say that. But uh, the movie Doomsday borrows heavily from Escape from New York. Uh, the um, Fortress uh, Russell Marshall is his name, the director, the guy who did The Descent. Yeah, uh, Neil Marshall. Neil Marshall. He's the one who directed that movie, but uh, hugely. Uh, um, Reminiscent of Escape from New York, and there actually was another one. I forget the name of it that actually went to court, and John Carpenter won because it was almost an exact replica. Hmm. And a little trivia for you guys, but uh, Ghost of Mars, yeah, uh, originally was based on a loose um, treatment, treatment, I guess, treatment for Escape from Earth, which was supposed to be the third sequel after Escape from LA. They were supposed to end up on Mars, and yep. Desolation wow. Jones was supposed to be Snake Plissken. If oh, you noticed, he right. had red and black uh, fatigues instead of uh, white and black that Snake had. You know, I only saw that movie once. It was uh, not that good, and uh, but yeah, I can I can definitely see that. Yeah, but um, I can understand where like a younger audience would not want to go to Escape from New York as their entertainment. It is a very slower movie, right. uh, slow moving movie. It's not it's it's not an action movie. It's a melodrama. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, and it's got a, a cool ticking clock thing going down yep. throughout the whole movie. But uh, for me, uh, I I think that that can't beat the original Snake. Just the way it is, you know. Not even with a shillelagh stick. If they were gonna make another movie, I'd say have him play Old Man Snake. You yeah, know? Right. I mean, Kurt I think Russell they should do Old Escape Snake. from Earth. You know, with Old Man Snake, that'd be amazing. Right? Mm-hmm. Fuck yeah. Just you know, whatever. It'd be great. But yeah. I digress. Nice, nice stuff. Good, awesome pick. Yeah. Uh, Boss Rush. I will say uh, Catwoman. No, I will, I will not oh, say. Yeah. Well, I said it, but I don't mean it. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. A Christmas Story is my actual answer. Oh, good. That's bad. That's a movie I've basically seen every year since I was like nine years old. When I think the movie came out in like 1983 or 84 or something <laughs> like that. So, and yeah, it's a movie I just love dearly. I can 
watch it another hundred times in life and I still will never get it. I mean, the, the fact that I only watch it like once or twice a year kind of helps. I'm not watching it like, oh, it's July 2nd. Let's go watch a Christmas story. Yeah. Right. It's always like during the I mean, there was that one July 2nd, but all the other ones you didn't. Right. I mean, there's been, there's been a few July 2nds in my life, but none of them involved a Christmas story. Yeah, one or two. No, at, least, at, least, at, least, at least two. At least none. But that that would be the movie I'd pick. Yeah, it's just one. you know, I mean, anyone who's seen the movie in you know, back in the day is better. Or it's just I don't know. A lot of people that I know that have seen the movie love the movie, so I'm I'm pretty sure I'm not alone in this pick. Yeah, definitely not alone in that pick. That's a that's a really good one. That's one of those uh, circumstances where the cast was just perfect. It was just yep. had whatever je ne sais quoi. You know, yeah. it, it just all worked. And I also think that um that it, it's so weird to me when when uh, comedies are remade because yeah. they are. And it's just, it's just like, like, you know, the overboard remake that just happened last mm. year or whatever. It's like, what the hell you, you can, you can hide behind, oh, the technology wasn't there back then. We want a new snake or we want a new, you know, all the stuff we could do now. You could justify it. You'd be wrong, but you could justify right. it. But a comedy makes absolutely no yeah, sense. So, yeah. so yeah, I'm actually going to pick a comedy as well. I'll go nice. next. Um, now, I'm a huge Mel Brooks fan, and, uh, you know, part of me wants to say, like, Blazing Saddles, but you couldn't make Blazing Saddles again. It would be impossible. You couldn't make Young Frankenstein. Like, none of his movies could put, put ever in a million years be redone, because they just wouldn't be Mel Brooks movies. So they're just impossible. So since I'm not going to go Mel Brooks, I'm going to go Clue, which is a movie that I always felt was sort of Mel Brooks adjacent. It was, it was, you know, it had Madeline Kahn. It had, you know, a lot of the zany, goofy humor. It was very joke a minute. And uh, it's just near and dear to my heart. And they have talked about remaking it. And I just feel like it has no chance of entertaining me because I'm at all times going to be annoyed that there's no reason to remake this perfect movie. It's it's a perfect movie. And uh, that people should just go see the original and stuff like that. It doesn't matter who's in it. It doesn't matter. It doesn't. Nothing matters. It's just to, in my eyes, that movie is, is perfect and cannot ever be improved upon. So what the fuck? Don't do it. That's what I say. Uh, what do you say, Nintendo? I'll have to go with The Princess Bride. Awesome pick. So such a good movie. I, I, I just I, I love the the whole idea behind it with the grandfather telling his grandson the story mm-hmm. called The Princess Bride mm-hmm. and the uh, the interaction between Fred Savage and Peter Falk is just good. So great, it's yeah. So 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 good. Andre the Giant, awesome. Like yep. such such a, a random person to have in the movie. And it just fit really well. It, it's, yep. he, he was just perfect. And um, Billy Crystal as Miracle Max. <laughs> I mean, I'm not a huge Billy Crystal fan, but he was awesome in this movie. He's he was so just funny in so that. Good. He just has that one so scene, good. and it's so freaking memorable. Is. Right, right. Have fun storming the castle. Right. And yeah, think course. it'll work. It'll take a miracle. <laughs> and bye-bye. And, of course, one of my favorite characters in the movie, Inigo, Inigo yep, Montoya. Montoya. Yeah. You killed my father, prepared to die. Yeah. Most famous quote in the movie, I right. feel. One of the most famous quotes in any movie. In any right, movie yeah, ever. Yeah, anything, right. so, yeah. Yeah, such, such so, a good so good. And how he nailed, he just, he just, just keeps repeating it at the end, just over and over and yeah. over and over, and it just sears into your brain. It's yeah. so great. Yeah. Uh, awesome one. Yeah, and that's one that they also have uh, talks about remaking, and uh, it seemed like the world at large was like, fuck, fuck no. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody wants this. Shut yeah. the fuck up. Yeah. Don't do this. Like, stop the remakes. And already. it seems like, it seems like, I too do not want off. this remake. I don't know. <laughs> like, 
but yeah, that I 100% agree. Like that's another one. And it's that also absolutely one of those movies where it does, does not, not need, need a sequel. It, it does really not need doesn't. a sequel. It's, it's right. doesn't even need to be improved it is, upon. It's fine. You hear that, people who made Christmas Story too? Yeah, <laughs> Christmas Story did not need a sequel. Yeah, they listen to this podcast. They're retroids. Yeah, but yeah. no, but uh, Christmas Story two does exist, and I hear it's horrendous, and I'll never see it. I'm, you shouldn't. I hope it you don't. Terrible. But if you do, and you're super offended, you will live. Yeah, I suppose I will. You will. I'll be very angry though. Yes. You're gonna be saying that now. Well, there's always that's always like some sort of a running gag for the episode, but this was just so somber. Shabiban. <laughs> Speaking of running gags, <laughs> yeah, we need it. We need a couple Shabibans and a and a lambast Bostwick in here, and we'll be we'll be fine. Eight uh, bit. What you got, my man? So, my man, I uh, I actually inadvertently was going to pick the same thing as Nintendo because I agree with the Princess Bride thing wholeheartedly. But uh, so to pivot, I would go with Labyrinth um, because yes. that was a movie I watched so much as a kid. And it is just absolutely looking back on it, something that shouldn't work. And it's just so crazy with the extreme, you know, puppeteering of jim henson you have all of these like fantastic locations you have david bowie you have david you know, bowie's bulge david bowie's bulge i mean you can't replicate <laughs> I mean, that He's i mean david bowie's bulge now. is the best character in the but movie it's just one of those movies that on paper is like what the actual fuck <laughs> but you watch it and it's so good and there's so many memorable moments and you know really great like heartfelt characters like hoggle is just so terrible to look at but <laughs> boy is he a nice guy yeah. i mean by the end of that you know should you need us yeah people should say that about me us. except for the nice guy part well that's okay Bosch, i mean you got time but also they'll live. i mean i think you're nice <laughs> they'll, they'll live. live so uh I don't yeah care. i don't care either right you know screw them that's what i say uh but yeah i think that a, a labyrinth 2 a labyrinth remake anything of the sort i would feel pretty violently opposed to because i would just say watch the original because the original is still great it's still fantastic there's so much artistry and, and craftsmanship in there and you know i think that it's it's an incredible movie that every kid should see and there's no reason to remake it remaking it makes it seem like you're devaluing the original like just point people to the original yeah, you don't just go watch to. it it exists already we don't need to make yeah. it again yeah. it's still good. if the whole thing was redone and it was all cg yeah it's like you know Oh my god, the the feats of puppetry that they fucking invented the puppets, for that movie. The matte paintings, like the labyrinth at the beginning when when Jennifer Connelly is like in the labyrinth and talking to the caterpillar and they they have this incredible, you know, like optical illusion of the wall that isn't really a wall, it's a pathway. It's like that still blows my mind. It's still incredible to watch her put her hand out there and have it go farther than you think it should. I know that it's just stupid special effects and that it's not even hard, but it's impressive and well, it's really cool. Well, there's cool. that, but there's also like the, at the end the giant mecha troll thing that that comes together. Oh, yeah, I mean, there's and, huge and, and also too, the yeah. uh, when when they're with the uh, the fire gang, the red the red yeah, guys and they're with the throwing beaks, their heads, their around. heads around that that, uh, that whole sequence apparently almost didn't work at all and Jim Henson had it in his head and he's like he literally left them and that was the first of uh, the first day the first job that Kevin Clash who did Elmo uh, actually was was working on a movie for Jim Henson. He had like done some small stuff, but that was his first like screen credit, and that was his first scene. That I think that was his scene that he worked on. And he and Henson literally said, "Figure it out, figure it out." And they're like, "We've been at this for two days. We can't figure it out." 
to how to get everything to work like you're describing. It's like all amazing. But anyway, anyway, that's, that's very cool. I love so me some think, Jim Henson and also foreshadowing. Just going to say. Okay, just, just going to say. Gonna, you should say it. Say it Foreshadowing. Again. Okay, foreshadowing. It's a word. All right, so awesome. So those are our picks. Hey, we made it. And, hey. uh, you know, before we... Uh, before we uh, say some more words that we're going to say, because, you know, we love to hear uh, what you guys would, would, would have to say about this particular question this week that we have asked you uh, with our mouths. Um, so, yeah, what would, uh, what, would your, uh, what would your pick be, Rushoids? Let us know on the, on the Facebook group, or you can email us, or you can uh, add us online anywhere you freaking feel like it, because we're, like, all over the place on Twitter and uh, Instagram and all this kind of happy horse shit. So, yeah. Come on us and uh, tell us what what movie you think is too sacred to ever be remade. And, uh, you know, uh, we would love to hear it. But anyway, we got to go because it has been like a little bit of a, a night. And uh, Derek, I know you got to go, my man. So do you want to just uh, drop some some tasty promos for uh, for maybe Gore Shriek 2? Sure. Anything absolutely. else to say? Well, first of all, go? before I even start, thank you guys so much for having me on board. This was oh, such a great coming. experience. It was yeah, nice awesome. spending some time with you. Yeah, thanks, and, man. Uh, it was awesome. You, you had got, us down in the Marianas Trench, but in a good way. You guys run a real tight ship, Roy. I'm very impressed. And I, I love this little man cave you guys he got. He loves his tight ships. Um, but yeah, you can find us <laughs> that at... That is uh, uh, what she said. Uh, that's right. Uh, so you can find us at roughhousepublishing.com. We're on Twitter at RHP Comics uh, or at RHP Comics. Uh, everyone's telling me to start an Instagram, so look out for that. But otherwise, just type in uh, Steve Van Sampson, Derek Rook, Roughhouse Publishing. You'll find us all. Uh, there you'll find our comic books. Right now we are promoing and releasing uh, the Gore Shriek Resurrectus series, which is uh, basically a continuation of the classic Gore Shriek series from 1986 and forward. Uh, it's a horror anthology, a modern horror anthology with a giant splatterpunk gore quotient that will make you guys giggle in all sorts of funny places. You need to buy the book. It comes with tons of extras, including barf bags and postcards. Medical grade barf and bags. Medical grade, yes. That's a <laughs> medical grade barf bags, which, by the way, means that if you use it to actually puke, it will not leak. All right. Medical grade. There you go. It's medical grade. And uh, ash cans with extra stories inside, uh, lithographs, everything you can imagine, stickers. uh, We have it all. So just uh, buy our stuff. Enjoy our uh, love and... uh, and uh, let yeah, us enjoy let our us, love. Let us let enjoy our love and make us be your number one comic book uh, retailer. And I uh, hope you enjoy that <laughs> that, uh, that that story that was Derek's favorite story in the second issue because that was written by some guy that I know. Yes, Steve yes. Van Sampson, yeah. oh, the I, Nowhere Man. You know, sometimes they uh, they call him uh, All All Hello, Hello Steve. Steve. Sometimes uh, said no does. one ever. Oh <laughs> damn! With that one, uh, we will say goodbye to Derek Rook. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you it guys. Was Take awesome. care. Yeah, you too. Awesome. All right. Well, it is almost time to catch that horizon. But before we say goodbye, let's go to this. You got your spiked gauntlets. You got your bullet belt. You got your leather jacket and your denim. You got your hairspray. Well, put them on because it's time for another edition of. Power to the I hope you guys are having a good day. I hope you guys have enjoyed this episode so far. Um, so I'm going to keep the theme of of The Crow, um, and, and I'm going to do something a little different and just talk about the soundtrack of this movie. Now, there are two separate soundtracks. One had an orchestral version of it, and there was another one that had actual songs right like the score versus the score right right, exactly Mm -hmm. so there's like a bunch of 
bands, uh, some some that you know, some you may not know. A lot of these people I don't know, and I don't know if they they're still around. Um, so I'll just get right to it. So, the Crow movie soundtrack was released in, on March 29, 1994, peaking at the top of the Billboard Top 200 album chart, which is wow, pretty impressive. amazing for a yeah, soundtrack. Especially since this was not a like widely released movie like by a big studio. This was right. essentially like not a B movie, but you know, a small Kinda movie. Indie, right. Yeah. It's a cult classic. Now, yeah, now it is. Yeah, yeah. but it, you know, there are plenty so, of movies that go right to Netflix. Right. This might have been like that sort of ilk or something. Right. And uh, it has sold 3.8 million copies in the United States alone. Wow. Just the soundtrack? Just the soundtrack. And was certified three times platinum by the RIAA, which is amazing for a soundtrack. That is freaking (laughs) nuts. So now I'm going to name off the the bands or the people who performed on this soundtrack. Now, keep in mind, a lot of these songs were not in the movie itself, which is kind of odd. Right. But there's a few of them... A handful, like, yeah, maybe a handful like four were. or five, like for briefly, but yeah, right. Go for it. And so, even a couple of the bands were actually on screen. Even the band, right. yeah, right. Like the rubber and lap, <laughs> or no, Here. the sweat. Yeah. yeah, go ahead. Head, head, head. Yeah. All right. So starting off this soundtrack, we God have. God damn it, Boss Rush. Ray. No, this is why I didn't want to say you know something right after that somber part because I would have said something stupid like that. Right, like job. lap band. All right, so I'm going to start off with the bands and name off the songs. And so I'll start with the order that they appear sure. on the album. So you have The Cure, and they have a song called Burn, which is written originally for this movie. And then you have Machines of Loving Grace with Gol- Golfka? Golf- Golgotha. I can't even say Golgotha. Word. Golgotha. Okay. Tenet Blues. <laughs> I know it's like blah 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 blah. It's like me with a name. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Oliver. I only only sur- oh, surnames. Surnames, yeah. right, right. Then you have Stone Stone Temple Pilots, which everyone knows. Yeah, that was definitely that the was biggest because that was that yeah. was a hit anyway. That was yeah. a hit anyway with, with Big Empty, um, Nine Inch Nails, which they did a Joy Division cover of Dead Souls, which is awesome because Joy Division is actually lyrics from Joy Division are in the graphic novel. Uh, that's because James O'Barr actually mentioned them. He said that he was heavily influenced by that band, right. and he yeah. really, really loves that band. Right, so yeah. that's that's a huge you know, key thing to know about that right. being in there. So that's pretty cool. Neat. Pretty cool. And then you have Rage Against the Machine, which was not in the movie. Nope. This song was not in the movie, and it was called Darkness, and it was a re-recording of Darkness of Greed, which was a B-side from one of their albums. Um. Not a, very, not a very good song. It's too rap metal for me. It's just, ugh, whatever. Um, they get uh, Violent Femmes, which they have a song called Color Me Once, which I don't recall if that was in the movie or not. Um, then you have Rollins Band, which they did a suicide cover of Ghost Rider, which is based on the Marvel character, hmm, which cool. I thought was interesting. I didn't know that. And then you have Helmet with Milk Toast, one word. I love Milk Toast. It's so delicious. Yeah, it's okay. It's okay. <laughs> no, no. Boss Rush, she was talking about you. Yeah. It's okay. Yeah, just to, yeah I'm, I'll, I'll live. I'm yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, you have Pantera, and they did a Poison Idea cover called The Badge. Now, I remember listening to this song quite a bit back yes. then. I, I loved it at the time. Me and too. listening to it again, it was like... Not as good I, as I remember. I did love it at the time. I, I haven't heard it in a long time, yeah. but I remember thinking that the Pantera song was so good. Yeah. 
Uh, then you have for for love, not Lisa, with the song called "Slip Slide Melting." And then you have my life with a thrill kill cult, cult spelled with a K, with a song called "After the Flesh," which was in the movie. The band themselves performed in the movie, and it's super painful. It is super mm-hmm. painful. I remember loving this song at the time. Me too, because I thought it fit it fit perfectly. Yeah. with that whole scene of. Of that Eric Draven, like a, yeah, just that's I think when he goes up to kill Fun Boy. Yes, yeah, this is by far my favorite scene. And that's a, that's a, that's the song that has the the weird like sound bite in the back where they're like, wicka, 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 yeah. I'm looking for entertainment <laughs> chap. Oh fucking a! Steve is getting attacked by they're, ladybugs. There, okay, real quick. <laughs> I don't know what happened in the studio over the past week. Somehow there was an explosion. A population explosion of fucking ladybugs. Yeah, there like are like two thousand ladybugs. Yeah, there's a shit ton in, in here in the studio, and there has never Crazy. been like one that we've noticed. And one of them just dived bomb my ear, and it scared the ever living <laughs> shit. It might be in my ear still. Continue, please. Swarm of ladybugs. <laughs> That's a new band name. Uh, okay, so another band called the Jesus and Mary Chain. They have a song called Snake Driver. No, I don't think that was in the movie. Um, a band called Medicine, and they re-recorded this song called Time Baby 3, which is a re-recording of Time Baby 2. I don't know why they changed the name. Because <laughs> we but needed anyway, a third. Is there a Time Baby 1? No, no movie we should never remake. Time, 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 right. time Baby, Time Baby, Time Baby 1. Time Baby, Time Baby 1, 2. And then, and then you have Jane Sidberry with the song that you hear in the movie briefly. Can't rain all the time. Oh uh, yeah, <clears throat> right. So you can't rain all the time. I I'm kind of disappointed with that because I mean, only because it's not the version that you hear in the movie. <clears throat> Excuse me. I want. I would 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 have loved to have heard the version in the movie, the full version from Hangman's Joke, which is the name of the band that Eric Draven's that Eric Draven right, was the fictional the, band that he was in. Right. I always thought the same exact thing. I didn't understand why. Like, clearly, they hired a band to do a part of a song. Right. They didn't hire that. them to do the whole song. Right. Like, that's what it should have been. They should have... Because it's just like, you know, on the Transformers soundtrack, like, you know, like, half the names were fake. Right. For those bands. I don't know. Like, but, right. like... Just, crucial ton. <laughs> crucial ton. <laughs> the shitty Beatles. How are they? They suck. Oh, so, so it's, it's not, not just a clever name. <laughs> Um, right. Yeah, I mean, why the why the fuck not? I right. mean, that that should have been on there. They right. should have hired I mean, somebody to play Hangman's Joke and write that song. Right. And clearly, they did have part of it. Right. Right. So, so yeah, the I mean, can't oh, rain all the time. Can't rain all the time. Can't rain. And it, yeah, you get to the end and you Bimmy finally Lee get in the Sunday sweats. Bimmy Lee and Sunday sweats. Yeah. Um, yeah. Sweats has to have like you know four syllables. Sweats. Yeah, I was doing. I was doing it like what's the, what's the Creed guy? Scott. Uh, what's his name? Scott, Scott Stapp. Stapp. Scott Stapp. Yeah. Yeah. He has stab throat. Uh yeah, it, and it's just you get to the end credits and it, it's like this this lady and it's all this operatic vocals and it it's very clearly not what we were hoping for and you know. Personally, although it, it you know it it fits it fits the mood, but anyway. yeah, I mean, Rockstar did it right with their soundtrack, so yeah, 
There you go. Yeah. There you go. All right. Yeah. Yeah. There you yeah. go. Yeah. 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 All right. So, so is so. that the soundtrack? So that's the soundtrack. That's yeah. soundtrack. Okay. Good job, Nintendo. Oh, thanks. Uh, anyway, that wraps up the episode, guys. So if you haven't jumped ship by now, we certainly hope that you have enjoyed this week's episode, this journey over the treacherous waters of all things that made growing up awesome. If you liked what you heard, please hit that little subscribe button and like us on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and all the crap. Retrodoctopus is part of the Inebriart Podcast Network. So, hey, if you get a chance, please check out our sister shows like the old Colony Cast Bar Talk and, of course, Inebriart as Annie and Fish chat with local artists over a couple of cold ones. A it couple says, of cold ones. Take a chat over Andy and it Fish. It says wands. Wands. Cold. Uh, I don't know where you'd find wands. two wands, wands that would let you drink a, atop them. But for more information or to subscribe to us or any of these great shows, please visit inebri-art.com. Once again, thank you so much to Derek Rook from Roughhouse Publishing for coming on the show. I have been your host. My name is Parasite Steve, a.k.a. Steve and Samson, a.k.a. All Hello, Hello Steve. Steve. Uh, and only these guys call me that. And it is indeed a, uh, a, a sad thing that your adventures uh, have ended here. Fucking ladybugs. <laughs> <laughs>